Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and the greatest of emergency medicine. Okay, let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. First off, not in my backyard, but actually, yeah, that's where drownings often happen. Second, for CPR, the advice is to push hard and fast, but if you could just pick one of those, which one should you prioritize, hard or fast? After that, let's do a quick masterclass on capnography because it's super important and not just for your ICU and anesthesia colleagues. And then from the fourth article, all you need to know about lytics for wake-up strokes without putting you to sleep. And finally, we end off with video laryngoscopy remains the king of the castle, even for intubation in children. If you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a Journal Feed subscriber, and so unfortunately, you're just not receiving the entire Journal Feed podcast. You're only receiving a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, they're all really, really good. But if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you will have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. And remember, if you feel that money is a barrier for you, we never want to stand between you know, you and the best patient care possible. So if you're having trouble affording a subscription, please just get in touch and we will help you out. Now, this is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by Aaron Lacey, Joshua Campbell, Christopher Thome, Lillian Harry, and Clay Smith. Okay, we're going to jump over to the second article. Titled, Contribution of Chest Compressions to End Tidal Carbon Dioxide Levels Generated During Out-of-Hospital Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation out of the journal Resuscitation. During a cardiac arrest, assuming it's not traumatic, then two things really matter. CPR and delivering shocks. Now, I know there's just that big paper on dual sequential defibrillation. It just came out, but CPR is what's on the menu for today. We need high-quality CPR. A useful surrogate for how good your CPR is is actually looking at the end tidal CO2, which we know does pretty well to predict outcomes, actually. But how do we assess the impact of compression depth or rate when end tidal CO2 varies so much with ventilation rate? What do we do? Of course, we do statistics. Now, having an end tidal CO2 tracing means that your heart is pumping, essentially, or else you wouldn't be able to move carbon dioxide from tissues to your lungs. However, the end tidal CO2 is kind of inversely related to the ventilation rate because as you breathe faster, you breathe off that carbon dioxide and you're not letting it build up. Here we have a retrospective sample of patients with all kinds of numbers. We have their cabinograph tracings, we have their compression depth, the rate, transthoracic impedance, and ECG readings. Now, matching these samples while controlling for the average end tidal CO2 to get rid of the ventilation rate variable allows us to isolate the importance of compression depth and rate. What can be quite clearly seen by a graph that's shown in the paper itself was that compression depth is much more important than the rate. This makes sense, actually, I think, because if you're not getting the proper depth of your compressions, then all of your compressions are useless. Well, if you just change the rate, then at least you're providing, you know, some perfusion. So if your end-tidal CO2 is not doing very well during resuscitations, perhaps look to optimize the compression depth when you're trying to fix and improve the quality of your CPR. This emphasizes the importance of changing compressors when one becomes fatigued. 
We actually covered an article in 2021 that showed that higher end tidal CO2 levels were associated with ROSC in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And I'll just remind everybody that the target depth is 2 inches in adults for the best results. In a spoonful, keep pressing hard when you're doing CPR. The depth of chest compressions is very important. And of course, so is the compression ratio, so just do as much CPR as you can. Okay, and then we're going to hop on over to the fourth article. What is the efficacy and safety of intravenous thrombolysis and thrombectomy among patients with a wake-up stroke out of the annals of internal medicine? Strokes are typically painless, which is great because no one wants to lose brain function and be in pain. It's tough, though, because, I mean, while a heart attack will wake you up from sleep, a stroke probably won't. So if you have a stroke in your sleep, remember that you sleep for about a third of your entire lifetime, then we don't know exactly when your stroke happened. That sucks, of course, because many of our study treatments for strokes are kind of time-based, making what you do even less clear and often disqualifying patients from potentially beneficial treatments. This systematic review summarizes a Cochrane meta-analysis from 2021 that targeted wake-up strokes. They had seven trials to include, which encompassed 980 patients. Five trials were on ultiplase, and the last two were on endovascular interventions. Many of these studies had inclusion criteria that required advanced imaging like MRI or CT perfusion studies, which kind of limits their utility. Now, for the endovascular therapy group, to achieve the outcome of independent functional status, the endovascular group was significantly more likely to be independent. 46% versus 9% in the control arm. Wow, big difference. Now, what about for alteplase? This is for the same outcome of independence. That's a Raken scale score of two or less. Here, we had a much smaller difference, but still a significant improvement with alteplase. 66% versus 58%, coming with a significant increase in intracranial hemorrhages, 3% versus 1%, but no change in mortality. So this leaves us much like the rest of the stroke literature. There's a clear benefit to endovascular therapy and a much less but possible benefit to lytics, for which the confidence interval nearly crossed one for lytics and was underpowered to properly measure changes in intracranial hemorrhage. Overall, this literature is hard to generalize because of the use of the advanced perfusion imaging, but benefit is likely or possibly still there. In a spoonful, endovascular therapy, even in wake-up strokes, had a clear benefit on functional status. Alteplase had a lesser effect that was more fragile, but still a benefit. And that wraps up all the articles for this week. Let's do a quick summary of everything we talked about. What did we learn today? Second, for pushing hard and fast in CPR, prioritize pushing hard, but you know, still push fast. And then from the fourth article, if you wake up with the stroke, you hope you go to the cath lab, that seems to give you the best outcomes. Lytics still seem to be beneficial though in this population. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where the newsletter is the best way to make the podcast into kind of like a bite-sized nugget of space repetition. Now, if you're feeling like you kind of missed out, you're thinking, hey, weren't there supposed to be five articles? I only heard two. Then come over and join us at the members feed. That's where all the other articles are. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you. <laughs>